Morning, everyone. It's my joy to worship with you this morning and to open God's Word with you. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, uh, passage by passage. And you may have noticed that over the last few weeks we've had to tackle a few difficult topics, and that's just been because that's what the next passage has been about. And uh, this morning is much the same. Another difficult topic for us to think through today. This is actually uh, one of those topics that I think uh, there can be a lot, of, a particularly uh, large amount of debate about, a lot of confusion about. My guess is that there's many of you who, at one time or another, or perhaps even still now, have been confused by this idea of the unforgivable sin. Maybe you've even been anxious about it, worried that you might have been guilty of committing it, or that someone you love might have committed it. Mark 3.29 says, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And this verse is obviously very, very weighty. Never has forgiveness. Guilty of an eternal sin. And if we just ponder this verse on its own, out of context, it is definitely very confusing. I mean, there's so many possibilities of what blaspheming the Holy Spirit might mean. But I can tell you, thankfully, that this passage has been a good example to me of how much it helps to study a passage in context. Both the immediate context, that is the, the verses immediately before it and immediately after it, and the broader context, the flow of the book as a whole, the argument of the book as a whole. And definitely understood in context, this passage is not as confusing as it might seem at first. I'm eager for you to see that today and be encouraged by it. I'm also eager for you to see the surprisingly practical and encouraging meaning of this passage. This may seem at first glance to be a bit of an obscure technical passage, and we are going to have to work today. We are going to have to work today. Um, but it, it is a passage with amazing relevance for all of us today. So, like last week, I'm going to ask you, please, put in the work with me, hang in there with me, right from the beginning of the sermon, because there's quite a bit I've got to unpack and explain, and it builds. But I trust as we move along, it'll become clearer and clearer to you. Let's start in Mark 3, verse 20. Mark 3, verse 20. It says, Then he, that is Jesus, went home... And the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Once again here, we see both Jesus' popularity and opposition against him. A crowd gathers around him yet again. A crowd so sizable, so passionate about getting near him and staying near him that he and, disciples, and his disciples can't even settle down for a little while and eat a meal. 
There's people all around him clamoring for his attention. He heals one, and then there's three or four more waiting in line for their turn. And as we'll see a little later in this passage, there's also a good number of people in this particular crowd who are not just there for the healing, who are eager to hear his teaching and learn from him. But even as there's this popularity, this crowd eager to be near Jesus for one reason or another, we see that there's also people opposed to his ministry. People who don't rightly understand who he is and what he's doing. And shockingly, in this passage, we see that the opposition is coming from people close to him. His family is trying to seize him, drag him away from the crowds because they think he's gone a little bit out of his mind, a little bit crazy. Remember, prior to Jesus' baptism and the start of his public ministry, some 30 years of his life, Jesus lived a very normal, quiet life. A sinless and perfectly kind and selfless, hard-working, God-honoring life in every way, for sure, but a very normal and quiet life in the sense that he was just a carpenter, not a big, famous teacher, not a miracle worker, just a carpenter, just a, in the eyes of the world, a very ordinary man. So a lot has changed in a very short amount of time. And his family, or at least some of his family members, don't quite know what to make of it. Some of them don't know how to understand it or what to do about it. So they try to seize him, your Bible might say, or your translation might say, they try to take custody of him. Basically, they're looking for a way to get him to get away from the crowds and bring a stop to all this chaotic attention around him. And they're willing to strongly insist on it, not just suggest it to Jesus, but they... This is basically an intervention. Jesus, what you're doing here, man? Let's let's go. This this needs to stop. We'll come back to this verse a little later to say a little bit more about it. But for now, let's just note once again both how popular Jesus is on the one hand, and how strong the opposition against him is from others. Not everyone sees Jesus the right way. Not everyone understands who he is and what he's doing. Look with me now at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. So more opposition against Jesus. And this time from the source we've come to expect it from from religious Jews, from Jewish leaders. Who were the scribes and why have they come from Jerusalem? Well, the scribes were experts in the Old Testament and especially the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. And they were very well educated, very studious, and they were looked to as guides in properly interpreting the scriptures. They were also uh, teachers of the scriptures in the synagogues. And the fact that this passage says that these scribes have come down from Jerusalem, the home base of Jewish religion, seems to indicate that they've been sent on official business. 
They don't just happen to be there. They've got a mission. Specifically, to make their assessment of Jesus known to the crowds that are following him. The Jewish religious leaders are basically trying to do damage control. They don't like what Jesus is teaching, they don't like a lot of what Jesus is doing, and they don't like how popular he's becoming. And as his popularity is growing, they want it to be known clearly to the public that they do not approve of this teacher. Beelzebul? Who is Beelzebul? There are a few different opinions about what exactly this name or title means and where it came from, but there's still broad consensus that it's either a name or a title that refers to Satan. It's either a name or title that refers to Satan. And so what is it exactly that the scribes are accusing Jesus of? Well, it's important to note, first of all, what they're not accusing Jesus of. They don't attempt to claim that his miracles are not real. They never claim that. Nor does anyone opposing Jesus ever claim that. And this is because they couldn't even begin to try to make that argument. Because it was 100%, absolutely no doubt about it, clear to everyone that his miracles were the real thing. He really was crossing our demons. He really was making paraplegics walk. He really was healing all sorts of diseases again and again and again. So if they can't make the argument that his miracles are not real, what can they accuse him of? They're trying to find something desperate to have everyone distance themselves from this man. And the best they can think of is to insist that he, he's doing these miracles by demonic power. These miracles are not from God, they're adamant, so therefore they must be from Satan. How does Jesus respond to this? Well, look at verse 23 with me. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus' response here is essentially that this is an absurd accusation. It makes no sense. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And in Colossians, Paul talks about those who are not Christians living in the domain of darkness. Now, of course, God created this world. And he is the rightful ruler. And it's also true that Satan cannot rule, never can, like God can. He cannot be everywhere. He's not all-powerful. Any ideas that, that might be out there, and they are out there, of God and Satan being almost equals and this being a, you know, a big battle, who's going to win? No. Satan is very powerful, but nothing like God. He's not everywhere. He's not uh, 
uh, not all-powerful. He's not sovereign over everything. He doesn't actually rule over every detail like God does. And we would definitely be going too far then if we think, as some think, that every problem in life has a primary or even exclusively demonic cause. Right? So that the answer to cancer is to cast out the demon of cancer and the answer to issues with our church sound system is to cast out the demon of static or something like that. Right? No. No. But at the same time, we can fall into another ditch. And we can live as if Satan is not real, as if demonic powers are not real, as if they're not exerting influence over many, many things in this broken, sinful world we live in. The Bible is very clear that Satan and his demons are present and they are exerting influence in a wide variety of ways, seeking to bend and twist things towards greater brokenness and greater rebellion against God. So, there's two rulers here. Satan has tried to claim this world for himself, but now the true king, Jesus, is here, and he's kicking out the imposter. The miracles Jesus has been doing are very tangibly reversing the pain and suffering of a fallen world, very tangibly reversing satanic influence. Demons who've been oppressing and harassing people are putting their tail between their legs now, like mangy dogs and running when they see Jesus coming. If we think of war dynamics, the enemy has won strategic ground and has captives. But now that Jesus is here, they're being made to release their captives and to give up the ground they've won. And now they are running scared. They're being defeated and humiliated. The miracles Jesus is doing are not just isolated demonstrations of his power or compassion. They're also doing real damage to the enemy forces. So, Jesus says, if it's true that he's doing these things by the power of Satan, then in this war, Satan is turning his guns on himself. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. Any kingdom that functions like that is a kingdom guaranteeing its own fall. Jesus continues in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus here switches to a slightly different analogy. Satan is powerful. He's the strong man in this parable. And he's been functioning as if this is his house. And everything here is his. And Jesus has now shown up at the strong man's house. And he's begun taking all the strong man's prized possessions from him. Every healing, every casting out of demons, Jesus is walking out of Satan's house with something he values. 
And the conclusion the scribes should then be drawing from this is that the only way Satan would actually be allowing that, something so audacious, is if Satan is actually in no position to stop it. And that is exactly the case. Again, God and Satan are not even close to equals. Satan is powerful. He is the strong man. But here in this, in this picture, this analogy, this parable, Jesus has tied Satan up and stuck him in a chair in the corner. And he's just sitting there helplessly watching as Jesus just takes back everything he's unlawfully taken. Jesus is far greater, far stronger, far more powerful. That's what's actually going on. That's what's actually going on. Now Jesus gives a solemn warning. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now we've already seen that the accusation the scribes are making against Jesus is that he's doing his miracles, he's casting out demons by the power of Satan, by demonic power. But we need to ask a few more questions and think back to what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark already before we can understand why it is that this accusation is so serious. Why it is that this accusation is an unforgivable sin. First of all, let's remember, whose power was Jesus really doing miracles by? We've talked about how Jesus lived life on earth and obeyed God the Father perfectly as a man. He needed to do that as a man in order to fulfill all righteousness and to be able to be our substitute so that he could gift us with perfect righteousness having obeyed God perfectly as a man. Though he's 100% God, he voluntarily chose to live within human limits. So when Jesus worked as a carpenter, he didn't just snap his fingers and voila, there's a donkey cart ready for sale. No, he had to saw the wood and hammer the nails and screw in the screws assuming they had screws in uh, those times, I, I don't know. But he had to do the work of a carpenter, like any carpenter. And you'll remember we saw this term Messiah or Christ, right? Messiah is the, the Jewish term, Christ is the Greek term for the same idea. We saw that that means anointed one, someone who is empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill a special role given to them by God. So in the Old Testament, that was prophets and it was kings, priests. And Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And we saw that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, which marked the beginning of his ministry. 
He was living life on earth within the limits of mankind, but empowered by the Holy Spirit to do miracles. And that's why Jesus says that when the scribes accuse him of doing his miracles by the power of Satan, what they're actually doing is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because his miracles are in fact done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we've already said, the scribes can't deny that there is supernatural power here. They know Jesus has supernatural power. But instead of accepting where the evidence obviously points, where the evidence points to God himself empowering Jesus, instead they attribute his miracles and his overthrowing of demons stubbornly in unbelief they attribute it to Satan. Attribute it to Satan. So now let's remember also, what was Jesus' primary message? Well, we saw back in Mark 1, a good summary of it. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus was proclaiming the good news that the time is fulfilled. The prophesied Messiah, the long-promised, long-awaited Savior and King was here. So turn from your sins and believe in Him. And this message, of course, hinges on who He is. It's only good news because Jesus is who He is. He is the Messiah. Who has come to rescue and reign. If he's not who he is, there's no good news. Another thing for us to remember, back to, is the answer to this question. Why was Jesus doing miracles? What was the main point of his miracles? He was doing doing miracles out of compassion, undoubtedly, definitely. We've seen that very clearly at a number of points as we've moved along through this book. But we've also seen that Jesus' healing and his casting out of demons also served to affirm his identity and to authenticate his message, to prove that he really is who he says he is and that salvation really is here in him. So now, with that background, we can answer the question of why it is an unforgivable sin to witness these miracles, to know that they're undeniably supernatural, but then to say that they're not from God. This sin is unforgivable because if someone denies that Jesus' miracles are from God, they're refusing to see what these miracles are. Testimony, proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And if they don't see that, they can't respond to him in faith. And they can't come to him for forgiveness. 
What does John 3.16 tell us? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. My friends, we're drowning. God has thrown out one of those inflatable rings they use for life-saving, and it lands right in front of you in the water. And in big, bold letters on that ring, right there in front of your eyes, it says, Salvation. And there's a loud call from the rescue boats. Grab on. You'll be pulled to safety. Grab hold of this and you will be rescued. You will be saved. But you push the life-saving ring away and you turn your back on it. John 3 continues, verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, friends, the reason the sin is unforgivable is not because of how great it is, though it is great. To attribute the goodness of God, the power of God, to attribute that to Satan is awful, wicked, evil. Especially when it's not, this isn't, this isn't something that's happening just because of a lack of information. This is happening because of stubborn unbelief. This is, as Romans 1 points to, this is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Because we're sinners and we don't want to submit ourselves to God. But that's not why this sin's unforgivable. It's not unforgivable because of how, how great it is, how severe it is. It's unforgivable because God has provided a way to save sinners. One way to save sinners. Through Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if you reject the Savior, if you reject the one who came into the world to make forgiveness of sins possible, then there's no way for your sins to be forgiven. If you won't embrace the Savior, there is no salvation for you. Think of this. There is only one unforgivable sin. Rejecting the one who brings forgiveness. And the point here is not that this is something that you can accidentally slip up and do and then, oh no, there's nothing you can do about it ever again. No. It's not that if you're guilty of this at some point in your life, then you can never repent of it. You can never come to Jesus in faith asking for forgiveness. The point is more that as long as anyone rejects the one through whom God brings forgiveness, as long as they do so, there's no forgiveness for them. There's actually many people, many examples um, in the scriptures, certainly in life. I'm sure many of you can even think of some people who stubbornly, people you know personally, people who stubbornly refused to see Jesus for who he is, but later came to faith 
one very striking example from the scripture, and especially so given our next few verses, is Jesus' younger brother, James. James did not believe in Jesus until after his resurrection. But would later, we, we know that clearly from the Gospel of John. But he would later become a leader in the Jerusalem church and the author of the book of James in our New Testament. Okay. Let's look now at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. This verse is actually picking up from verse 20. I said we'd get back to verse 20. And this is an interesting literary device that Mark uses sometimes, and where he leaves a subject and then comes back to it. And then the first, uh, first part where he addresses the subject and the second part where he addresses the subject, it's like a, a sandwiching type technique, to use a, a very technical term. Um, not technical. Um, it's like a, a sandwich type dynamic, right? And what he's doing is that when, when you see Mark do this sort of a sandwich type thing, the two pieces of bread of that sandwich, there's a, there's, a, there's a theme, there's a connection with those two pieces of bread and the meat in the sandwich in the middle, the poloni in the middle, right? Okay. Uh, there's a connection, a thematic connection. And, uh, and it helps you understand the main point being communicated in the two pieces of bread and the meat in the middle. What's the connection here in this particular sandwich? Both the scribes and Jesus' family members are opposing him. And both the scribes and Jesus' family members are well aware of his miracles, but both are not seeing Jesus for who he really is. Both are not responding to him as they should. And the next couple of verses here make the main point Mark wants to communicate to us. Verse 33 says this, And he, that's Jesus, answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? So people tell him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. Jesus says, Okay, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is talking about his true family. On the truest level, who is his family? Those who see him for who he is and come to him in faith. Those sitting at his feet, which is a picture of learning from a teacher, a teacher that you are intently following. Jesus says here that those who do the will of God are his true family. And in context here, the will of God, that, that these people sitting and learning from Jesus 
are doing. The will of God is to see Jesus for who he is, to embrace him in faith and follow him. That's Jesus' true family. So let me ask you, are you, are you part of Jesus' true family? What do you do with his message and miracles? Do you see and embrace the truth that they testify to? That this is the promised Messiah. This is the King. This is God, very God. This is the one come to rescue and reign. This is the Savior. Or are you missing who he is? In fact, not just missing who he is, but holding him at arm's length, perhaps. Refusing to commit. My friends, it's worth considering, right? Of course, as we talk to people about Jesus, it's, it's good and right to, to try and answer people's questions and and to try and give people evidence, and certainly to show people from the Bible things like uh, Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy, and, and, and here's one, two, three reasons why we believe that Jesus really is who we say he is. Sure, it's good and right. But we must remember, we must remember that evidence, right? Evidence alone is not going to convince everyone. Surely we see that from the life of Jesus. It's abundantly clear, or should be abundantly clear. This man is from God. Look at all he's doing. Listen to his teaching. With authority. The scribes don't teach like this. Right? And we've seen prophecies he fulfills and and John the Baptist's testimony to him, and on and on and on, right? And yet there's still some people who refuse to recognize that he is who he is. The evidence points very, very clearly a certain direction, and they, and they refuse to see it. Romans 1, I mentioned earlier, talks about how God has made himself clear through what he's created. I mean, think about this, right? Think about this. We've got a world packed full of, um, of beauty and wonder. We should look at, look at things like sunsets and beautiful flowers and, and see how, how, how a seed becomes this massive tree. We should look at all these things. We should think about our ability to, ta to taste and to see and to hear. We should think about the beauty of family and love and so on and so forth. We should see, look at all these things, think about these things, and it should be, should be undeniably clear to us, this doesn't just happen. There's a God behind this. There must be a God behind this. But you've got very, very smart, very, very learned people, highly educated people, trying to convince us that there was this two nothings banged together, and then there was this little jellyfish, and then this jellyfish became 
um, you know, eventually became a monkey, and that monkey eventually became you. Come on, man. That's, 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 not, that's, that's not logic. That is stubborn determination to not believe in God. That's what that is. And that's what the scribes are doing here. All the evidence points one way, and they say, nope. It, I don't want it to be that, so it cannot be that. It must be this. And so I challenge you. If, you, if you, you're coming, you're coming out of interest, you want to see what the Bible says, it's wonderful. Please keep coming. Please keep coming. But I want to say to you, creation declares God is real. And our Bible is very, very clear. Very, very clear. That God has sent his son fulfilled prophecy he's done incredible miracles to testify undeniably testify to who he is and you've got the history of the church remember we were saying last week eyewitnesses who knew whether or not this was real who were still willing to die for it not just people who believed something deeply but were misinformed. People who would have known if they were wrong. Either they saw the resurrected Jesus or they didn't, but they did see him. And they believed for good reason. Okay? There is good reason to believe that Jesus is God and Savior. And so I encourage you, embrace him in faith. Embrace him in faith. Don't hold him off at arms, man. If you don't see Jesus for who he is, there's no hope for you. That's what this passage makes clear. If you don't embrace Jesus for who he is, there is no hope for you. No matter how religious you are, no matter how many good works you do, there is no hope for you. But here's the other side of the coin. And hear this. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever. And you may be thinking, oh, but you don't know my sin. You don't know how greatly I've sinned, how often I've sinned, how deeply entrenched my sin is, how enslaved to my sin I feel. My sin, my sin, it's too great to be forgiven. Hear Jesus from our passage today. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. If you do see Jesus for who he is, if you do embrace him in faith, all sins will be forgiven. There's only one unforgivable sin. So if you're not rejecting Jesus, if you are embracing Jesus in faith, all sins will be forgiven. Whoever believes will be forgiven all sins. There is no sin too great for the death of Jesus on the cross to pay for. There is no sin too great for the death of Jesus on the cross to pay for. And there is no sin that God in his amazing grace is unwilling to forgive. So please, see Jesus for who he is. 
embrace him in faith and be forgiven. And so those of you who have already put your faith in Jesus, let me ask you, do you know the fullness of the forgiveness God has granted you? Are you living in that reality? Are you remembering it? Are you reminding yourself of how comprehensive his forgiveness is? Brothers and sisters, don't doubt how thoroughly and completely forgiven you are. Remember that Jesus saves from all your sin, past, present, and future. Nothing, right, as Paul tells us, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus our Lord. So once again, right, we see that this is the most important question. Nothing is more important than the answer to this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? If you will not see him for who he is and embrace him in faith, there's no hope for you. But if you do, if you do, all sins are forgiven. Praise God. Praise God.